Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the deep sea. Writer and aquatic explorer Susan Casey calls it nature's motherboard, absorbing heat, buffering excess carbon, driving our climate, and regulating the Earth's geochemistry. It's also home to mountains taller than the Swiss Alps and populated by a cast of, quote, marvelous weirdos, creatures that have eyes in the middle of their backs, two mouths, three hearts, transparent heads. And Casey knows this with her own eyes from diving in deep sea submersibles. We learn about her journeys to the underworld, the title of her new book. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The deep sea often looms as a threat or a cautionary tale, writes journalist Susan Casey, as if the deep were too remote, too frightening, too ugly to be lovable. But what if, she asks, we have it upside down? What if the deeper you go, the more astonishing everything becomes? That's a question that's driven Casey, a deep-sea obsessive, her entire career. And it's the impulse behind her new book about the wonders, the weirdness, the power and vulnerability of the ocean abyss. It's called The Underworld, Journeys to the Depth of the Ocean. Susan Casey, welcome to Forum. Thank you. It always amazes me when I stop and consider how little we know about the ocean. I mean, it feels like we've learned so much. And yet, as your book reminds us, we have barely scratched the surface. That's right. I I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around just how big it is and how much of Earth's biosphere it actually comprises. Uh, People often use the statistic that 70 percent of the Earth's surface is covered by ocean, but I prefer to think of it as a three-dimensional habitat, you know, a biosphere. And in that uh, way, 2% of the biosphere is the terrestrial part, the part where we live, everything we know, everything we see. 98% of it is ocean, and 95% of it is deep ocean. So (laughs) it's not just that we live on an ocean planet, we live on a deep ocean planet. (sighs) Yeah. Can you remind us of the zones below the sunlight zone, essentially, the top layer that we study the most, where you say the, quote, real action is taking place? Yeah, everything we see when we look out of the ocean is really just a ceiling. And so uh, 
the the realm between 600 feet, which is essentially where sunlight disappears, all the way to the deepest spot in the ocean, which is the Mariana Trenches Challenger Deep at almost 36,000 feet, hmm. uh, are divided up into a, four different zones. So below the sunlight zone, we have the twilight zone or the mesopelagic zone. Uh, I prefer the twilight zone because it is an enchanting <laughs> part of the ocean from 600 feet to about 3,300 feet. And then below that, the midnight zone or the bathypelagic zone from uh, 3,300 feet or 1,000 meters down to 3,000 meters or about 10,000 feet. And below that is the abyssal zone, also known as the abyss, from about 10,000 to about 20,000 feet or 3,000 to 6,000 meters. But there is a, a, a region even deeper than that called the Hadal Zone, named after Hades, the god of the underworld, from 6,000 meters or about 20,000 feet down to 11,000 meters, almost 36,000 feet. So the Hadal Zone is uh, really profound. It only occupies about 2% of the, the seafloor, but it is responsible for 45% of the deep ocean's depth. And how deep did you go? Can you remind our listeners or tell our listeners? I went to into the abyss to about 17,000 feet on my de- deepest dive. And, uh, you know, obviously there's, there's much below that, but it was a pretty profound experience to go, you know, more than 5,000 meters. Um, there at the time I did it were only about four subs in the world that could have gone that deep. Uh, you describe it, the depths of the ocean, um, as a shadow kingdom shadow, because we know so very little about it and have mapped very little of it too, right? I think I saw a stat of, of 80% of it, you say, is really not mapped in any detail. Yeah, so um, that's referring to the seafloor itself. And as I was finishing up the book, uh, they changed that to 25%. So we have a high-resolution seafloor maps that show bathymetry, which is the submarine version of topography that shows mountains, valleys, canyons, uh, all the huge geological features that are in the deep in detail at, at high resolution. And, but if you look on Google Earth and you look, you can see features on the seafloor, but those are mapped by satellites. The vast majority of them are really low resolution. So about mm-hmm. 75% of it is really kind of an estimate. And whenever uh, to, to map at high resolution re- actually requires a ship with a sonar array to pass directly over an area. So again, because of the immense scale of of the area, that takes time. And uh, there are certain parts of the ocean where ships don't often travel. So there is an initiative to have the entire seafloor mapped at high resolution by 2030. But that's really ambitious. And every time they do go to somewhere new and you know, take a high resolution sonar array across it, they just it's like the Hubble telescope getting its lens put on. We find all kinds of features we didn't know about. Incredible. We're talking about some of the wonders of the deep sea with Susan Casey, and you listeners can join the conversation. What have you wondered about the deep sea? Or are you a diver or have seen or experienced something in the ocean that's really stayed with you? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. 
Instagram, Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So I do want to ask you, Susan, about your dives. Um, you've taken two journeys. The first one in the submersible Neptune, when you traveled down to the Twilight Zone. Can you tell us um, what that was like for you? I mean, it was an extraordinary experience because it was my first time experiencing the deep ocean. And it was something that I had really yearned to do for as long as I can remember. Uh, and the other thing that was extraordinary about that dive is that uh, there are submersibles. Uh, when you go into a submersible, a human-occupied submersible, you are sitting it, into the deep ocean. You are sitting inside a sphere, which is known as a pressure hull, because the sphere, the sphere is a really important shape in deep sea exploration, there, there are just immense pressures. Uh, when you, the deeper you go, the, the more pressure there is at, at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, for instance, it's about 16,000 pounds of pressure per square inch. So the sphere mm. is the only shape that distributes that pressure symmetrically. So there's no particular area of high stress or, uh, you know, wh where the pressure is hitting more intensely than any other. Uh, and ha everybody knows that, you know, if you stand on a tin can, you can crush it in the middle fairly easily, but a sphere is a much more, uh, you know, a, a shape that doesn't not crush easily. It just gets stronger when you press on it symmetrically. So uh, deep sea submersibles have a, a passenger hull that, uh, that is shaped like a sphere that people sit in. And when you get into the very deep ocean below the twilight zone, it's usually made of titanium or steel with viewports. But in the, well, well, what I would call the shallower parts of the deep ocean, there is a type of passenger sphere that is made of really crystalline clear acrylic. So they can go uh, as deep as about 6,000 feet in these acrylic hulled passenger subs. Um, and when you're in that kind of a sub, you're floating in a bubble really. And you're seeing the ocean in 340 degree around you. So it's sort of like a psychedelic aquarium and you're part of it. So that was the type of sub, the Neptune was that type of sub. And there were three of us in it, myself and two pilots. And um, we descended through the upper part of the ocean where the sunlight hits the water. But as any scuba diver knows, the wavelengths disappear quite quickly. Red wavelength goes first, then orange, then yellow, then green. And then you're just in the blue and the violet. And before the sunlight disappears and you're just seeing this pure blue light, it is a very trippy experience. We don't have that sort of light on land. We never see it anywhere else. And everybody reacts to it. It's very hallucinogenic. Uh, feels uh, almost more alive than it does just a color. And um, below that, the water starts to become dark, although the blue light continues through the water column almost to the bottom of the twilight zone, but our eyes can no longer perceive it. So we're looking at darkness. But the great thing about the twilight zone is that it is filled with bioluminescent animals. And in fact, there are more marine creatures in the twilight zone than there are in all the other regions of the ocean combined. And 80% of them can twinkle and glow and flash their lights. And they use that as a signaling mechanism, as a, if you want to call it a mode of communication for hunting, for uh, finding a mate, for, for looking for prey, 
looking not to become prey. So it's a very important adaptation to life in the deep ocean. And that just makes it a very visual experience to go through the twilight zone. Everybody has seen these pictures of these strange looking fish with giant eyes and giant teeth, and they look absolutely terrifying, but most of, most of them are quite small and quite adorable, actually. Uh, so it is really, I call it the Manhattan of the deep. It's, it's just a kind of a eat or be eaten kind of place with a lot of action and a lot of light and just a lot of intriguing animals. Describe one of the adorable ones for us. Well, uh, I, I often show pictures of the viper fish, which is this small fish that its teeth are so long, they they burst out of its mouth and start to wrap around its face and they're translucent. So they don't reflect light. And uh, they act sort of like the bars on a jail. Because in the deep ocean, if you catch something, you know, you don't want it to get away because looking for food is a pretty much a full-time job. So it's adapted. It's long. A lot of the fish have sort of eel-like shapes. They're elongated. They they have these big teeth and big eyes. Um, but there are, there are any number of strategies for life in the deep ocean and all kinds of different body shapes and forms. I was also really struck by the description of the descent as basically being in free fall. Yep. Yeah, uh, you know, you're going straight. Yeah, you're going straight down. However, you know, you're going through water. So even in the sub that descended the fastest, which was another sub that I dived in, you're going about a meter per second, but you're going straight down. So uh, you don't feel it. You have no horizon to gauge this by. You don't realize exactly the depth, uh, you know, the speed or the depth that you're traveling. You have to look at instruments inside the sub to know that. But yes, until you reach the bottom, you're basically going on a vertical descent. And then at the bottom, they will release uh, some of the weights that have made the sub negatively buoyant. So you're more neutrally buoyant and you can cruise around about just above the seafloor. And then at the end of the dive, they will release a heavier weight. So the sub is now positively buoyant and uh, it just uh, heads for the surface at that point. Mm. We're talking with Susan Casey, author, journalist, aquatic explorer. Her new book is The Underworld Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean. And we'll have more with her and with you, our listeners, after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about some of the wonders of the deep sea with Susan Casey, who has plunged into the deep in submersibles. You might know Susan from her previous books, which include The Wave in Pursuit of the Rogues, Freaks, and Giants of the Ocean, and The Devil's Teeth, a true story of obsession and survival among America's great white sharks. What would you like to ask about the deep sea, about the creatures that inhabit it, its geological features, maybe how the deep sea affects us on land? If you're a diver, What have you seen or experienced in the ocean that stayed with you? Or even if you're not a diver, (laughs) what that experience has been like. If you've gone deep, how deep have you gone? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And Anne in Mill Valley joins us. Hi, Anne. You're on. Hello, hello. This is crazy that you're having this conversation right now. I just got back from the Galapagos and uh, scuba dove around Darwin Island. And I had the crazy experience of having three whale sharks within seven minutes of our dive. And it was just unbelievable. I'm still like pinching myself. And I just got back on Tuesday. Um, It was a phenomenal trip. I went on a live aboard and with my son and you know, it just was life changing. <laughs> it it must have been. I mean, that sounds incredible. And and Susan, I know that you also just have had incredible experiences with sharks. <laughs> I, I'm jealous. I uh, have not been to the Galapagos, and I have not actually been in the water with a whale shark. Uh, but that it must be a completely transcendent experience. I mean, they are the largest fish, and uh, they're just such gentle giants. Um, and I, I mean, I think that what I hear in Anne's voice is this feeling of once you experience that the sort of the beauty of the underworld, uh, you it really does change everything you perceive your place on Earth, um, the Earth itself. It's a, it's really a life changing experience. I can hear it in her voice. Yeah, you have this wonderful line, Susan, where you say that in the Neptune, it was as though I was meeting the world for the first time. Do you, do you want to say a little bit more about that impression? Yeah, I mean, it's back to the notion of the deep ocean that we never see is 95% of Earth's biosphere. So if we do not experience it or have some sort of personal relationship with it, how can we really know where we live? And so to me, it was just an absolute uh, delight and a revelation to actually wit- to experience it, to witness it. But um, it is a journey. Uh, the idea of a descent is a journey that makes us less comfortable than, say, the idea of getting in an airplane, um, you know, flying around at 35,000 feet above the surface, or even going into space. We, we're comfortable with the idea of going upwards, of rocketing into space, of, you know, we can see the sky, we can see the stars, but the journey inward and downward is a journey into darkness. It, it's a journey in, in a sense of faith, a faith in the engineering of the machine that will take you there. And it's at, it's nothing to do with conquest and everything to do with submission to mm. the ocean's rules. She sets the rules. And those rules involve, you know, there's going to be 
tons and tons of pressure per square inch. And we go there, when we go there, I wrote, also wrote, in the deep ocean, humans can't even pretend to be in charge. I mean, it is <laughs> yeah. just the reality of there, there are things that are larger than we are, forces in the ocean, of course, that are larger than we are. And you don't even have to go that deep to know that. I'll, I always say, stand in front of a 70-foot wave and tell me who's in charge. Uh, but it is, to me, that humility, that sense of uh, wonder, those are the things that are I feel are often missing in my own life, I think in modern life in general. Uh, and all of those things are, you experience them in abundance when you go beneath the surface, when you take that journey inward, the, the journey into, into the deep, deep yeah. of whatever, your own mind, your own soul, uh, literally into the deep ocean. Your book, I think, went to press before the Titan submersible disaster in June that killed five people. But just yesterday, you published a piece in Vanity Fair examining and reflecting on what happened. And I was struck by how you said you feel sadness and empathy, but you also feel anger. Why does the Titan disaster make you angry? For, well, I guess the most obvious reason is that uh, it was a flawed design that everybody knew and told Ocean Gate was a flawed design. It was just a kind of an end run around all the very uh, important regulations and safety rules. Uh, by the way, none of them are, uh, I'll get into the whole notion of why, but none of this is, it, it's not illegal uh, what Ocean Gate did. They kind of threaded a needle through a bunch of regulations. So there was nothing unlawful, but it certainly was unwise what they did. And um, all of the, the the design of the sub as a cylinder, um, it, you know, military submarines are shaped like a cylinder, but they don't go very deep. They they might go a few hundred feet and people live aboard those. So that that is the shape that they are. But deep sea submersibles, as I mentioned earlier, really it's the sphere. So it doesn't really matter if you're business plan requires you to have five people in a cylindrical hull. The ocean doesn't care about your business plan. The fact is that craft is going to have to withstand at 4,000 meters, 6,000 pounds of pressure per square inch. So not only was it the wrong shape, it was made of the wrong material. It was made of carbon fiber wound filament, which is a material that's used uh, in a lot of aerospace applications in airplanes. It has incredible strength if the pressure is coming from the inside out. So in gas cylinders, it's often used. But when you apply a external pressure to not only that shape, but that material, it, it has the very undesirable uh, trait of being unpredictable. And so every material that is used for safe deep sea exploration is very predictable and over-engineered. Uh, so if something happens, they know exactly what, what how the material is going to respond. It is not going to that the, the phrase is fail catastrophically. So um, if you throw a rock through a glass window, that fails catastrophically. If you apply pressure onto titanium, it does not fail catastrophically. So using carbon fiber filament was uh, introduces the potential for an implosion, which is exactly what happened. And mm -hmm. the reason there are... Uh, I was angry because that was known, that has been known since the 70s and 80s, because carbon fiber wound filament uh, pressure hulls were used in the oil and gas industry. Single person, sort of wearable subs were made of this material. And um, 
they didn't go very deep. They only went to about a thousand meters maximum, but the marine classification societies, which are like the equivalent of peer reviewers on a science paper, they come in, they look at all the equations, they look at the construction, they test things, and they, they say yes or no. And they do that throughout the entire process of creating something. They eventually condemned all the carbon fiber filament, uh, uh, passenger uh, subs, and in this case, they were just one person, kind of wearable subs, but it was known. It has been known for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, we know a lot about the material itself. And even when Stockton Rush, the uh, founder and owner and, uh, you know, who was piloting the sub when it imploded, when he first tested a one-third scale model of the Titan, the sub that we, he would eventually take to the Titanic, um, it imploded at far less than its uh, the, the depth they were trying to test it to. So there was a direct analogy, aside from all the historical understanding of how you build a safe pressure hull, he saw it, he heard it, and then he just went right ahead and built it. I was sad to hear that you knew one of the scientists on board PH. Do you just want to tell us a little bit about PH? Yeah, and that's another reason why I felt anger, because... P.H. Narjale was a deep sea icon. Uh, he was 77 years old when the submersible imploded. I met him in 2019 when I joined an expedition that he was on called the Five Deeps. And it was uh, a really amazing expedition, a year-long expedition to dive a very revolutionary, fully classed and certified two-person sub that could go to full ocean depth. And P.H. was uh, on the team as a technical advisor because he is one of the uh, most experienced deep submergence pilots in the world. I was, uh, you know, intimidated to meet him because his, his the, what he had done, he had been the, the commander of the uh, France's 6,000 meter sub, the Nautil. He had been um, a, uh, an expert at um, clearing explosive ordnance from the seafloor. He was a decorated commander in the French Navy. I mean, PH was his resume is five pages long and as an ocean explorer, like just makes your eyes bug out at everything he had done. But PH was the most charming, gentle, friendly, and knowledgeable person. Always just everybody loved him. Um, I loved him. And I didn't even really get to spend that much time with him, but I didn't need to. But he was also one of the, well, not one of the, he was the world expert on the Titanic. Um, after the wreck was discovered in 1985, and it was discovered on a joint expedition between uh, the Americans and the French, but the French weren't on site the, the night that they the towed camera saw the boilers and took pictures of them. Uh, they decided uh, that they would take some artifacts that would otherwise be, you know, disintegrated probably in pretty short order and use them for historical and educational purposes. Uh, so PH actually dove on the Titanic in, in the no-teal more than 30 times and had developed a very emotional relationship, not just with the wreck itself, but with the stories of all the people that had perished on the Titanic. He, for instance, had found uh, when the sub touched down one time at the wreck site, a bunch of sediment kicked up and he saw a glint of something and picked it up with the manipulator arm and saw that it was a watch. And so they took the watch up 
and they looked at it and it had initials engraved on the back and it was uh ph looked through the manifest of the passenger manifest of the titanic figured out whose watch it would have been did research to find that they had living relatives and took the watch to their front door in the UK. So he was incredibly, uh, he, he had a real, um, I, I almost, he used the word in his book. He wrote a book in 2022 about his dives on the Titanic. It's, it's only in French, but, uh, I read it and, um, he called it, you know, it just was the center of my life. And so he, the idea of an expedition going to the Titanic without him involved was emotionally difficult for him. And so when Oceangate reached out, everybody said to PH, good God, you can't do that, PH. Like, this is dangerous. And by now, the submersible world at large have been telling Oceangate, your sub needs to be certified. You need to do more testing. This is really problematic, just over and over and over again. And PH knew all this and yet decided to go on that sub, um, <laughs> revealed to some of his family members and some of his colleagues that he did have concerns, but he just couldn't stay away from the Titanic. And um, ultimately, you know, his association with Oceangate proved fatal. Such a such a loss. Uh, we are reflecting on, on that and the Titan submersible disaster in June with Susan Casey, and also just about the forces of the deep sea that she says we need to be humble and and submissive toward. Um, and you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions and comments. Let me go to Gil in Fremont. Hi, Gil. Thanks for calling. You're on. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, my question was uh, regarding uh, deep sea reefs. I got a chance to dive with Carl Stanley on the Itabel uh, out in Rotan, Honduras. Uh, Honduras to see the deep sea reefs and uh you know there's these corals down there with these brittle stars and uh at least from asking him I, I don't think he was a researcher or knew much about it but like well, what how much do we know about some of these deep sea things uh, the, I know not a lot of study goes on so that that mm. was kind of my question I haven't been able to find much info yeah deep sea reefs Susan Casey yeah, there are deep sea corals that are absolutely extraordinary. They're very different than the corals that we find in the shallower parts of the ocean and how lucky the, the listener was to be able to see those. Uh, so they're among the most ancient creatures on earth. They can live longer than 10,000 years. There are corals that look like they are dipped in gold. And they, they tend to be really uh, a predominant part of the environment uh, of the deep ocean, particularly on seamounts. Um, and one of the things that I had several submersible pilots tell me is the difference between a seamount that's completely intact. They're like oases in the deep ocean. And the corals, if you think of it as a rainforest, the corals are the trees. Uh, they, and they and they can get very large, the, the deep sea corals. Uh, they are just a host to all kinds of creatures from the macro scale all the way down to microbial and microscopic creatures. Uh, but when fishing nets come along and trawl the, the seamounts, the corals are just smashed into ruins. And because we never see them, I think if people could see the difference between an intact coral forest uh, on a seamount and the one that has been completely destroyed by a trawl net, they would just recoil at the violence and the destruction of it because uh, it's, it's the difference between uh, a, a vibrant 
lively place full of color and just an absolute ruin, a ghost town. Mm. Uh, but these corals are incredibly important in term for all different kinds of reasons. It, it, he mentioned brittle stars. Brittle stars are relatives of starfish. They have these long attenuated kind of spider, spidery arms. They wrap themselves around corals Um and you can see a coral uh, with just hundreds of animals nesting in it. Um, so it's quite extraordinary thing to see. <laughs> well, Vicky on Discord writes, avid diver here. I'm so curious, have they made any goggles that let us see how underwater creatures see underwater, given their <laughs> visual spectrum or umwelt? What an interesting question. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't <laughs> haven't heard of such a thing, but I will say there are a lot of very creative doings with eyes in the deep ocean. Um, and so among them are, uh, you know, very oversized eyes to be able to pick up any glimpse of bioluminescence. And one example of that would be the giant squid, which, uh, you know, lives in the, the sort of the realm below the twilight zone, the midnight zone, a little bit even deeper, possibly into the abyss, has the biggest eyes in the animal kingdom. They're as big as volleyballs. And what they scientists think that they're using such oversized eyes for because you know metabolically that's a pretty expensive thing for a creature to have is that they can pick up just traces of bioluminescence from when their arch predators which are sperm whales come zipping through the water all the bioluminescent microorganisms and smaller creatures will light up so they leave a bit of a trail and if the giant squid's eyes can pick up just the faintest traces of that bioluminescence it can has a better chance of avoiding uh the the sperm whale because you imagine in the open deep ocean it's dark there's nowhere to hide can't hide under a rock. There's, you know, there's no hole you can go into. So there are all kinds of uh, strategies with light to both hide and attack. And so oversized eyes give the ability to uh, perceive that. There are, there's a fish called the spook fish that has two eyes that are that are basically four eyes and they function like, so they're sort of divided in half and they function like mirrors rather than lenses. There's a squid called the uh, cockeyed squid uh, that has one big eye that uh, stares, I, I, I might get this backwards, but one big eye and one little eye. And one of the eyes stares is focused upwards and the other one's focused downwards and they're different colors. And the fish that has the most interesting uh, what I call the winner of the ocular weirdness Olympics is a fish <laughs> called the barrel eye fish, which has a transparent head and its eyes are sealed inside its transparent head. And they, when you look at a picture of it, they look like green egg yolks kind of, and uh, they can move to be facing forward or they can move 45 degrees to be staring directly upwards through the transparent head so the barrel eye actually can stare out of the top of its own head so Amazing. i would certainly love to try a pair of goggles like that <laughs> <laughs> oh the creatures of the deep sea and so much more with susan casey stay with us this is forum Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about some of the wonders of the deep sea with Susan Casey, who has plunged into the deep in submersibles. Her new book is The Underworld, Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean. And you, our listeners, are joining us with your questions about the deep sea, your experiences in the ocean that have really stayed with you as so many of Susan's journeys have stayed with her. Uh, Questions that you have about the creatures that inhabit it, the geological features, how the deep sea affects us all on land. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum or call 866-733-6786. And Susan, I do want to ask you a little bit more about how the deep sea affects us on land because there are, we talked about the incredible pressure forces, but there are also forces that that you say the deep sea exerts uh, that if they did not, we, we may not survive, that it buffers our excess carbon, that it determines our climate. Can you talk about some of these forces? Yeah, I mean, the ocean is just this incredibly complicated and giant, I mean, it's, it is, as we mentioned, in 98% of the planet. So it's a, it's transferring heat, it's transferring nutrients, it's, tra- it's creating oxygen, it's transferring uh, oxygen up through the water column, uh, through the different layers of the ocean. There's just a, an intricate suite of systems all holding the planet in the balance that, you know, we have evolved to, that that is habitable for us. 80% of the microbial life on earth is in the deep ocean. And basically microbes, everything microbes do makes the planet habitable for us. So it is just, I mean, it's sort of the entire planet. So nothing that, that we, uh, that affects us in the terrestrial world is, is un can be up uncoupled from the, the systems of the, the ocean in particular, the deep ocean. And yes, it's the client. It's the engine that runs the climate system, again because of the transferring of heat, the currents, the, you know, just uh, it, it's just this. It's a thermostat. It's a chemical balance. It's just all of it. Well, people are discovering down in these hydrothermal vents the elements that are needed to produce technologies we rely on, like phones and batteries and solar panels. And there's a very live discussion about whether or not nations will approve industrial deep sea mining in the coming years. How do you feel about that? Um, nothing I've ever researched and reported on has freaked me out as much as deep sea mining. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to give an overall sense of it, it is uh, it would be the largest extractive industry we have ever created. Uh, it is not happening on an industrial scale yet, but yes, as you mentioned, there are many interests that would like to see it start happening. And it's a it's a live debate right now at the International Seabed Authority, which is a group that was created to sort of administer the deep seafloor beneath the waters beyond national jurisdiction. So 54% of the planet is under the auspices of this group, which was created by the UN when uh, the Treaty of the Law of the Sea uh, was drafted and then c- countries ratif- signed and ratified it. Um, and the, but the International Seabed Authority is now no longer reports to the UN, 
And many people, myself included, think that that organization has been uh, captured by corporate interests, by mining interests. And it is very unclear uh, how to, for an organization that is supposed to be functioning for the benefit of mankind, how mankind can actually have a voice in determining, A, whether we have to do this at all, B, whether now is the time to do it and that we know enough about the environment to do it, C, that we have the technologies that would uh, enable us to do it with the least harm, and D, that the players that are currently interested in doing it are the ones that should be doing it. So uh, the answer to all of those questions at this particular moment, uh, in my mind, is are, are no. Um, deep sea scientists have... Uh, sort of gathered themselves all their information and decided that what would be the same thing to do would be to create a moratorium. So 10 to 30 years of further study about the deep sea floor before we go in there and extract metals. Um, mm-hmm. Now, it's kind of complicated that the the thing that would be extracted first are these manganese or polymetallic nodules that essentially grow on the sea floor at abyssal depths. They take hundreds of millions of years to grow. So once we take them, they're effectively not coming back on any time scale, any sort of human time scales. But it would also really affect all the animals that live inside these nodules uh, because they're more like trees or corals than lumps of metal. Mm -hmm. And there's some microbial involvement in creating them. Uh, Animals live on them. And then all the, the rich microorganism that live in the seafloor, the very dense microbial life that dates back eons. Everything is alive in the seafloor. And in fact, life exists even a mile. That's as deep as we've managed to find it so far, but that doesn't mean it doesn't go deeper. But even beneath the seafloor, there is a lively microbial ecosystem that we know very, very little about. And so uh, the worst thing about deep sea mining is that we would be destroying an environment that we don't even understand what lives there. Hmm. We're talking with Susan Casey and with you listeners. Let me go to caller Art in Santa Rosa. Hi, Art. You're on. Hi. Thank you so much. This is a great program. I'm a, a big scuba diver. Uh, mostly recreational. I used to be a commercial diver years and years ago. However, uh, Ms. Casey, you're one of my heroes now. Uh, lumped right in there with Cousteau, Sylvia Earle, and James Cameron. Um, oh my, thank you. I wanted, to ask, I wanted to ask a little bit about ballast. When you mentioned dropping ballast, um, I'm curious what the ballast is consisted of. And also, I never understood when uh, they talk about... Uh, Gasoline on the Trieste is being abolished. Uh, so thank you. I'm okay. wondering if the tri- Oh, yeah, what a, okay, yeah. What a good question. Um, so, uh, to, okay, let's start with the current current ballast. So it's steel. Sometimes it's steel shot. Sometimes it's steel bars. And um, what they do, it, it's basically it's just pure steel. So it's left on the seafloor, but it's not it's not a polluting kind of thing. I mean, the microbes have their way with it, and it is basically there's as we just mentioned, lots of metal elements on the seafloor. So uh, you will find steel left from submersibles on every dive, but uh, not in any sort of harmful way. Now, the Trieste, uh, now, the, the, I have to explain what the Trieste is for, first. So the Trieste was a, a bathyscaphe, and it was in 19, uh, in the 1950s and early 60s, the inventor of, 
the Swiss inventor, Auguste Picard, uh, who had sailed a balloon into uh, the mesosphere. I, I forget the exact height, but like 53,000 feet or something. He decided that he wanted to create a a means to descend into the deepest parts of the ocean. And at that particular moment in time, there had only been two human beings that had ever gone into the deep ocean and witnessed it themselves. And their names were William Beebe and Otis Barton. And in 1930, they went into the twilight zone about as, about 3000 feet, uh, to in a, a steel, a five foot diameter steel sphere that they called the bathysphere, but they were tethered to a ship. Uh, and it still was very incredible because they were able to come back and talk about the bioluminescence and talk about the incredible forms of the creatures that lived in the twilight zone, but it was pretty limited. And, uh, you know, you, if anything had happened to that tether, it would have been game over. And so Auguste Picard was looking at this and thinking that the idea of a tether was way too restrictive. So he created this uh, other, uh, vessel called the the bathyscaphe. And so uh, it was a, it looked like a Zeppelin. Uh, so it was large. It, imagine a, a Zeppelin float, 60 feet long, very thin aluminum skin around that. And then uh, a, a tower through that, that uh, with a pearl dangling on the bottom of it and a hollow pearl. And that was the passenger sphere. So two people could sit in this passenger sphere and the float itself, the sort of Zeppelin part of the Trieste would be filled with gasoline because gasoline is lighter, is a fairly incompressible fluid that's lighter than seawater. And they weighted this with, with ballast and the ballast in the case of the Trieste was steel shot that went into hoppers. So again, it's like, it's a very simple mechanism in terms of how it descends and how it ascends. It would descend negatively buoyant with all the steel shot. The gasoline would, uh, as it descended, the seawater would flow in, making it slightly heavier. And they could control that, how much seawater came in or or not. And then they would release the steel shot on the bottom. And because the gasoline was slightly lighter than seawater, they would then be positively buoyant to come back up. So in the very most most rudimentary sense, it was a, it was kind of an elevator, but um, it, the brilliance was the gasoline because it was they did not have what they have now, which is a material called syntactic foam, and sy- syntactic foam is again makes use of the sphere mm-hmm. as a as a crush resistant shape, and so syntactic foam are blocks of epoxy resin with millions of little glass microspheres in them, so it is also positively buoyant to offset the weight of a of a met, a metal passenger sphere uh but it's it's light it's crush resistant so there was no syntactic foam in 1960 when the trieste successfully took two men uh Jacques Picard Auguste's son and a navy US navy lieutenant Don Walsh were the first two men to go to the deepest spot in the ocean the Challenger deep in the Mariana trench in the Trieste. And, and, uh, uh, Don is, is one of the characters in my book. I had the great fortune to meet him. He's 91 years old now. And he, the stories that that man has, <laughs> oh my God. And he's just hilarious. Uh, it's been one of the great joys of my life to get to know Don Walsh, but they were the first two men to, uh, go and they went in the Trieste. And on the way back up, Don told me 
Jock Picard and he, he were talking about, well, in two years, probably there will be all kinds of people down here. Uh, and when they were on the bottom of the Challenger Deep, they didn't even know what kind of seafloor it would be. Maybe it would be quicksand. They they had all kinds of theories. Nobody even knew. They saw something long and flat swimming away, which they took to be a fish. But we now know that fish can't go all the way to 36,000 feet. The deepest fish can only go to just shy of 30,000 feet because they haven't yet evolved for their cells to not implode below that depth. Eventually, mm -hmm. probably they will. But they probably saw a holothurian, some sort of invertebrate flapping away that looked like a flat fish. But it was important. It was an important sighting because it showed us that there was life down there. It was, you know, there is life yeah. all the way to the seafloor and even below so uh, on the way back up, they thought any day now, there will be all kinds of people exploring the trench, the Hadal trenches. And in fact, it took 52 years the, to 2012 when the third person to go to the Challenger Deep uh, went there, uh, director James Cameron in a one person submersible that he created himself. But the pressure was he, he had a successful dive. He had a lot of problems with his thrusters and some other things on the sub because again the pressure just so dramatic but he did his dive successfully came back up and uh so in the course of 52 years a grand total of three human beings had been to the deepest spot on our own planet during that time 2,000 people had been to the top of everest 200 people had been to the international space station Amazing. Um, let me remind listeners, we're talking with Susan Casey. Her book is The Underworld, Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I want to ask you about when you were ascending back to the ocean surface from a dive in the submersible. And um, you describe experiencing this immense grief, actually. And I'm wondering if, if you could explain what you were going through. Describe the emotion and and how you think about it? Yeah, it was, uh, as I said, it, it's such a privilege to get to go down in one of these submersibles. Um, I, when I began my reporting, I hoped, I, I thought I would get to go, I thought I had a notion of how I would get to go in one of the acrylic hulled subs, because there are, you know, about 16 of those in the world. Uh, that's, that's through the twilight zone. So I figured I could go there. But the idea of going any deeper than that was, I just, as with all nonfiction reporting, you just don't know what's going to happen. You just have to sort of go forward with faith. Um, and eventually, of course, I did get very lucky. But the acrylic cult sub was my first, this is the dive that you're mentioning. Uh, first of all, you expect a lot of things, you expect to be odd. But I don't think I expected the emotional impact of the beauty of it. And the when you get below this sunlight zone, you feel that it is not space because you see the depth, the matrix of life that surrounds you and just how dense it is. And when you go deeper, you feel the presence of the ocean herself. And it is like being within the life force of the planet in ways that everybody who dives tr struggles to express the emotional impact of that. To me, it really felt like a very serene, very powerful presence um, in the most, uh, it was the, the creative force, the life force, uh, you know, the beauty and serenity of that, but also the ferocity of it. Uh, and I've always really been drawn to that combination of beauty and terror, the sublime. 
Um, and even though humans can create the most beautiful things and the most terrible things, only nature can create the sublime, the over awesome, you know, you just the, the thing that creates the, to me, a kind of a, a, a combination of ecstasy and humility. And I feel like that's missing in our modern lives. It certainly feels like it's missing in my life. So I felt those longed for emotions in the deep ocean and also just the the sort of like the scratching of the itch of curiosity to see what is in the that 95% of the planet that we don't know. I always think of it as like, it's imagine living in a house with hundreds and thousands of spectacular rooms filled with treasures and artworks and amazing animals. And we've only looked in one or two rooms. The idea of not being able to look in any more rooms and not being able to experience the ocean essence and her heart and her presence felt absolutely impossible to me. And so I felt myself starting to panic almost um, with grief. The only time I've ever felt grief like that was when my father died very suddenly. And I just did not want to get out. I felt like I had finally made it home. And now I was being, I would never get to go there again. Yeah, you write like falling in love with someone and then never seeing them again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we just have a minute, but Bayonne had a question about deep sea explorer Victor Vescoso, v Vescovo's special vessel that went to Challenger Deep in the Pacific Ocean's Mariana Trench. Over 6.5 miles deep, writes Bayonne in 2019. Can vessels like Vescovo's reach any place at any depth in the ocean, or are there problems that have not been overcome yet? No, no, his, his, this is the sub that I was so fortunate to dive in. It is it, the, the history of deep sea exploration will be divided of manned deep sea exploration will be divided into before Victor's sub. The, it was called the limiting factor and, uh, and after Victor's sub. So Victor Vescovo is a very adventurous, very successful man from Texas who decided he had done, <laughs> he had summited all the tallest mountains. He had skied to the North and South Poles. He looked into the ocean and thought, wait a minute, why hasn't anybody been to the deepest spots in the ocean? And he commissioned the most creative, most successful submersible company, Triton Submarines, to create this very amazing vessel. And it is fully classed and certified by the uh, the most strict uh, marine classification rules. So it can go up and down to the Challenger Deep mm. every day of the week. And well, it is continuing to be used for science. Um, it is just a magnificent machine. Well, Susan, just thank you for connecting us to this world by sharing it through your writing, because we probably will not have the opportunity to do what you did. So really appreciate that. And yeah. really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. The book is The Underworld, Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean. Thank you, Susie Britton, our lead producer, for producing it. Forum is also produced by Caroline Smith, Grace Wan, and Juan Carlos Lara. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo, our engagement producer. Francesca Frenzy, our Discord producer and digital community producer. Also, Danny Bringer and Brendan Willard, our engineers. Our interns, Jericho Reininger and Emiko Oda. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Thank you, listeners. Have a great weekend. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.